Okay, thank you. Good morning. Um, so yes, so last week we had uh, Wendy Mann with us, which uh, was a great thrill. We occasionally invite different guest speakers to come, uh, and particularly we will invite them, often we'll invite them to bring uh, a, a preach regarding some of the themes of our cultural values. And so Wendy spoke very particularly on encounter. Previously we had Adrian Holloway come and speak on trust as he talked about why we should trust the Bible. In the autumn, we have a guy called Ian Henderson who's coming to speak uh, on the whole issue of integrity. Uh, and so we continue to intersperse through our series different opportunities to invite guests who come and they just remind us of these values that we hold very dear. Wendy served us very well last week. She talked about writing psalms. I don't know if you remember that. And uh, as I was reflecting on that, I felt that was probably uh, a really important biblical way of us understanding how we can express our emotions and perhaps even our frustration to, uh, to God. And I think uh, as we look in the Bible, we see that uh, particularly in the Psalms, when we uh, are struggling or battling or frustrated, the, the uh, biblical picture of communicating that is Godward. It is actually, we can be entirely free to express how we feel to God himself, which is uh, what I think was the most important uh, element of, of how we should express frustration, because he already knows anyway, because he can, he can read our thoughts. Uh, and so that was just an interesting aspect of what Wendy brought to us. Uh, but obviously, as we run, run along through uh, the church calendar, we also want to have uh, times where we have a series and it just felt really relevant and perhaps quite pertinent following on from Wendy that we would have a time where we speak about miracles. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do. And we're going to start today in Luke 7. Uh, just to set the scene, Luke chapter 6 talks about Jesus coming and speaking to a crowd. It's the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, now that is a, a flat ground, obviously not a Boeing 747, uh, just to be clear. Um, and it was, uh, it was a, a time where Jesus uh, came and he spoke to people. Uh, and some of the material that you see in the Sermon on the Mount is reiterated in this particular sermon, which was on a, a flat area uh, where many people came. Jesus spoke about loving enemies. He spoke about judging others. He spoke about how we should build upon the rock. So there were various aspects of that. Uh, and so we follow on from uh, that particular chapter as we begin to look at Luke chapter 7, which uh, just concludes uh, Jesus speaking to them and then moves into this uh, remarkable miracle that we're just going to look at today. So Luke chapter 7 from verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves, you, deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. 
but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Okay, so there are some important issues, I believe, here for us to get hold of. Firstly, I'd like to think about the Jews' misunderstanding. And again, this follows on from what Wendy Mann talked about last week. The elders come to Jesus, the Jewish elders, they come to Jesus and they say, this man deserves you to do this because he loves our nation and has built the synagogue. Come on, Jesus, you need to act. Because when it comes to good deeds, this particular centurion, he's, he's in the premiership. He, he loves our nation. He, he's built our synagogue. He deserves it. He deserves for you to do it. Oh, dear. I would describe this as dodgy ground. He deserves it. The implication here is that there are categories of people. Some people who deserve God's favor and some people who don't. And I wonder where in the minds of the Jewish elders the the line was. Where did they draw the line between the deserving ones and the undeserving ones? The deserving ones, perhaps, in the eyes of of these guys, were the, the ones who were kind to them. The ones who were good to the people of God in their, in their understanding. So I don't know what their league table of goodness looked like, but it seems clear that this man was in it. He qualified. This man deserves you to do this. I've been troubled by that phrase. Maybe it's simply because we know it's not true. You come face to face with God himself, the creator, the one who made you out of dust, the the one who decided that he would pay the penalty, take the punishment for your sin, the savior, the one who has rescued you from slavery, the one who snatches you from the very jaws of hell itself. You come face to face with him and then you talk about deserving things. No, we should be eternally grateful that God does not give us what we deserve. So maybe that's why I'm troubled by this phrase. This man deserves this. But I believe this, there's something more here. There's something, something worse, something more sinister. And maybe I'm troubled because as I look at the Jews making this statement about this centurion, telling Jesus that this man deserves to be favored, as, as I see that, I know this is exactly what you and I do at times. Maybe not directly, but indirectly, even subconsciously, we make judgment. We look at people and we decide what they deserve or what they don't deserve. 
we see this person over here working hard, serving well, giving their all, we conclude they deserve God's blessing. We see this person over here who seems to be doing very little, we think something different. Now you might say, wait a minute, Terry, we don't do that. We're not like that. How dare you? Who do you think we are? Okay, well, here's the real test. Ask the question of yourself. Maybe there are people here today who feel that if they stopped working, if they stopped serving, they didn't fulfill their calling, actually they really wonder whether they would deserve for God to bless them. So we're back to what Wendy was talking about, the performance mentality, the conditional versus the unconditional. Do we really believe that God loves us unconditionally? So I'm, ask, so I'm asking that question today, and if that's you, I, I realize that I'm asking us to be brutally honest with ourselves. But if that's you, if you feel that God's blessing, that God's favor is somehow linked to your performance, I want to say three things to you. The first is this. It's not true. It's profound, isn't it? You are loved by God. He wants to lavish his favor and his attention on you because you are loved by him. He chooses to love you because he does. He chose to love you because he just did. That's the truth. Nothing can stop him loving you. Nothing you do can make him love you any more or any less than he does. He's God. He doesn't love you in degrees. He loves you. If he loves you, it's the whole thing. It's the real deal. There's nothing held back. There's no, no conditions, no matter what you do or don't do. Dangerous, isn't it? God's dangerous love. Number two, linking performance with God's favor is harmful. And if you're doing it, it's already done harm to you. And it will continue to do harm to you in the future. It's an affront to your self-worth and to who God declares you to be. Number three, this is hard to believe, but it's true. If you believe that performance is linked with favor in your own life, if you feel you need to work to earn or to deserve the blessings of God, if you're placing that sort of burden on yourself, then subconsciously you will place the same burden on others. So you will not only harm yourself, you will harm other people. People you work with or serve with people that you lead, your friends, your children, whoever it might be. If it's ringing bells for you, I'm pleading for you to sort it out. Respond to God, get prayed for, take action. Look at how this perspective can be sovereignly changed by God as we take hold of that responsibility to change. So if you're linking God's love and God's blessing with your ability or your willingness to please Him, let me say there is a whole new level of freedom that you can enjoy. Jesus, come and do this. He deserves it. No. Now, the clever ones amongst you will be looking at the text and thinking, 
wait a minute. The Jews go up to Jesus and says, this man deserves you to do it. And then the next line reads as follows. So Jesus went with them. So as we look at the context, it seems that Jesus hears that this man has been good to the nation, deserves to be blessed. On the basis of that, Jesus is persuaded to go with him, which cuts across and goes against everything I've just said. I've just said that God doesn't respond to us because we deserve it, and yet that seems to be exactly what Jesus has done right here. Well, we could read it that way, but I don't think that is the case at all. It would be entirely inconsistent with other examples of Jesus' ministry where he shows mercy and blessing to people who really don't seem to deserve it. Zacchaeus, Matthew, the tax collector, the adulterous woman, the thief on the cross, the list could go on and on and on. So, he didn't go for that reason, but why did he go? Why did he do it? Well, we don't know for sure. But it seems that Jesus wants to use the faith of this Gentile centurion to teach the Jews a really important lesson. So let's for the moment contrast the difference in attitude between the Jewish elders and the centurion, the Jews. This man deserves you to do this, the centurion. I do not deserve you to come under my house. Quite a difference there. This statement demonstrates great humility. This man seems to understand who he was and understand who Jesus was. Deserve for God to heal my servant. I don't even deserve for you to come under my roof. Now, that's quite extreme, and you may feel, well, this guy's taking things a bit far. You know, this is a bit sort of Uriah Heep. Oh, I'm ever so humble. Oh. Is, it, is it that or not? You know, Isn't he a little bit like Peter who says, you know, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus doesn't seem to agree with that attitude and says, no, no, Peter, you you come with me. You're going to be a fisher of men. Isn't it the same here? You know, isn't the man doing the same sort of thing that Peter did back then? And yet Jesus seems to commend this man. What's the difference? Well, we need to read on to see the difference. This is what the centurion says. He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve you to come under my roof. That is why I've not even considered myself worthy to come to you. And here it is. But, buts. There are some big buts in the Bible. We'll leave it at that. But, say the word, and my servant will be healed. I do not deserve, I do not deserve. But you, if you say the word, Jesus, my servant will be healed. Yes, humility but combined with faith. I don't deserve anything, but if you say the word, if you say the word, Jesus, the job's done. Let's have a look at this man. He was a centurion. We've got a centurion coming up on the screen. There he is. This guy is in full centurion's dress as part of what they call reenactments. You know what a reenactment is? I'm always amazed that, you know, these people, they dress up. And they drive in their Volvos or whatever. If you've got a Volvo, that wasn't an insult to you. They drive in their cars and they, they drive through a great big field. And then they rush at each other in these, in these, these fancy dress. And, um, and, and some of them, some of them immediately get killed. And so for two hours, they lie in the mud. And then at the end of the battle, they get up 
and get back in their Volvo and drive all the way home. Oh, what a great day out. I've had so much fun. Anyone into reenactments? I, I don't think you're going to admit it now, are you, to be honest? Yes, I am. Um, it looks quite fun, actually. I, I think some of it looks quite fun. I, I, a bit, bit violent, maybe, a bit dangerous for me. I, I wouldn't mind going to watch, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'd want to take part. Anyway, the, the, the centurion, here he is. This is, this is a, a, a picture of, of this guy. He was a professional officer in the Roman army. Centurions took their title from the fact that they were commanded to look after 100 men, although those units of men changed to 80 for reasons which are completely mysterious. Uh, in comparison to the modern military, their closest descendant would be the sergeant major. So a Roman, Roman centurion was distinguished by his uniform. You can see there his armor was silvered. He wore his sword on his left-hand side rather than his right-hand side. He also wore his decorations and awards prominently, as you can see, on his chest uh, so that he could see, uh, people could see his bravery in battle. His friends and his enemies alike could see, who oh, he is a man who's brave because of all of the rewards and all of the, uh, all of the medals that he has. He also carried a short staff or a stick, as I would call it, um, uh, usually a vine stave. Um, it was a symbol of authority. There was a, a famous centurion who was nicknamed Give Me Another, which meant Give Me Another Stick, because he'd broken the stick on the back of one of his soldiers to encourage them a little, uh, which was nice. Centurions uh, were uh, soldiers who suffered he heavy casualties themselves because they would fight alongside the men that they commanded. Uh, and so they led from the front. They were inspired uh, people and they inspired their men. Uh, being a commander, the centurion had the authority to give rewards to the men and also to punish them. The centurion's punishment could be pretty severe including execution, which is quite severe, isn't it? So they, the Roman army was known for its harsh conditions, but uh, this sort of paid off during the battle where strict orders, discipline would often decide the outcome of a, of a fight, and often the legions, the Ro uh, Roman legions, would succeed in battles where they faced an army which were miles bigger than them. But because of the discipline, because of their authority, uh, they were able to often win battles. And so a man who desired to be a centurion had to be at least 30 years old, and he had, if he'd entered the army, say, at the age of 16, he would have spent half his life as a soldier, and that would give him the experience he needed. So there we are. That's the centurion. You might be sitting there thinking, gosh, the history of a centurion. Did I really get out of bed for this? This is unbelievable, really. Why didn't I go to Soul Survivor with the youngsters? Um, but I, I, want you, I want to encourage you to stay with me because this is the background of this man who's talking to Jesus in this passage right now. This was his world, the world of the military, authority, commands, discipline, obedience, the world of unquestionable authority, the authority which could actually dictate whether a man should live or die. 
This kind of clear authority and obedience was vital because a soldier's life was a dangerous one, and it still is, of course. An authority like this, and we still see it in the military now, it, it works like a machine. An order goes out from the top, each rank underneath does what they're told, passing the word on to those below them. Now, we don't live outside the military. We don't live in very tight or clear authority structures. There are people we respect, maybe in our workplaces or wherever, and they're models of authority, but they're not as direct as that in the military. And I suggest to you that maybe sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that God's authority is a bit like the authority figures that we come across in our lives. You know, they're not that definite, not that direct. We also realize that God's sovereignty over this world is exercised with such love and such compassion that we would struggle with imagining, you know, God being a commanding officer in charge of a battle. But as we look at this story, we see the authority of God at work through His Son, Jesus Christ, in such a powerful way. The only comparison I think that we can use is actually what was in this soldier's mind, the authority held by a military officer, absolute authority. Because this story is not, I don't believe this story is really about the healing of a slave. This story is about the faith of a centurion in the authority of Jesus. And the story concludes with a very clear and decisive demonstration of Jesus' authority. Let's understand this man's faith. Let me put it very plainly, very clearly to you. This faith isn't some abstract belief about God. It is a clear and simple belief that when Jesus commands that something is so, it happens. It's done. He regards Jesus, this man regards Jesus as like a military officer with authority over sickness. And if Jesus says that someone's going to get well, then they're going to get well. What's, what could be simpler? Let's compare that prayer of that centurion with sometimes how we can pray. Sometimes we pray. We may not pray them out loud, but sometimes we'll pray prayers like, Lord, I might perhaps like you to do this if you wouldn't mind, but I know that you might not want to, or maybe it's too difficult, or perhaps it's impossible, but um, we'd really love you to do it anyway, so I wonder whether you'd think about it. But if you don't, then really bless this, that, and the other anyway. And, and, and we, when we finish praying, we're confused. We're not really sure whether we've asked for something or we've not asked for something. It's true that, of course, God always reserves the right to say no to our requests. But I want to encourage us, we should never have any hesitation in asking. We can ask in faith, knowing he can do it. Because either Jesus Christ is Lord or he's not. This centurion's prayer, say the word and it will be done. Now I aspire to have that sort of faith. To have that confidence. Let's be encouraged today. Let's get to grips with the truth about Jesus the healer. He has unquestionable authority over sickness. That's the reality. Let's not be embarrassed to ask. So today I'm asking the Holy Spirit to increase the gift of faith in the room. I'm asking Him to do it for us as individuals. I'm asking Him to do it 
for us as a corporate faith community. That we will be a people of faith, a healing community, seeing God powerfully at, the work, at work. In the midst of an unbelieving culture, we see in this story a man of faith dared to come and dared to ask. And Jesus was more than willing to respond. In our unbelieving culture, in our culture of cynicism and skepticism and unbelief, let's come. Let's dare to ask. The other part of the story I would like us just to focus on before I conclude is the fact that Jesus wasn't even in the same room when the slave was healed. He didn't lay hands on him. He didn't breathe on him. He simply spoke the word. And the man was better. The fact that the power and the authority of Jesus is able to transcend geography is really important. In order to see healing, we don't even need to be in the same room as the person we're praying for. Grace and her midweek group were not in the same room as her friend with the brain tumor. And yet, the authority of Jesus to overcome that sickness is evident. From my own personal experience, one of um, the most significant healings I've seen in that regard related to a boy called Will Battersby. This is a story which is about eight years old, uh, and I've seen many more healings that I could talk about, but um, uh, which are more recent, of course. But this one came to mind because, again, it was to do with the geography. This was Will, uh, the, the little one there, um, in his mother's arms. And at only a couple of months old, Will Battersby began to lose weight. And he continued to lose weight day after day after day. And no one could work out why. He was moved from the Royal Shrewsbury Hospital to the Birmingham Children's Hospital, where he spent six weeks. His mom, Lisa, said it was a very stressful time for us. The doctors couldn't explain it. He wasn't getting any better. She had to move to Birmingham. Lisa moved to Birmingham to... Um, uh, to be close to him with Will's older brother, Tom, who at the time was two, there he is, in dad's arms, and sister Enya, 11, while her partner, Stu, uh, went to work, uh, continued to work in Shrewsbury. It was a very hard time for them. By April, more than two months after Will was first admitted to hospital, the doctors were still at a loss as to why Will, day after day, was losing weight. Lisa came back to Shrewsbury and on Sunday, the 6th of April, she decided to go along with Stu to a church in the north of Shrewsbury. It was called uh, North Shrewsbury Community Church. It's now called Hope Church, Shrewsbury. That day I happened to be visiting that church and I was speaking on the subject of healing. And at the end of the service in Halscott, in the north of our town, I prayed with Stu and with Lisa for William, who was still in hospital in Birmingham. Remember that day after day, Will had continued to lose weight. The next day, Will put on weight. They were completely mystified as to why he'd lost weight, and they were equally mystified as to why suddenly he began to gain weight. 
And he continued to improve from that day. From that 6th of April, he gained weight every day. And by the 17th of April, just 11 days later, he was discharged from hospital. The geography didn't seem to matter. We were in Shrewsbury. Little Will was lying on a bed in Birmingham. Here's a story which is more recent that you may remember. It's a story of a girl called Tess who was a bridesmaid for members of our church, Trevor and Tracy Hughes. Last year, she was diagnosed with cancer whilst living in Southampton. When the results from the biopsy were discussed, uh, the tone of the consultant suggested her options were very limited, even with chemotherapy that would buy her maybe a few years um, if the cancer had spread to her abdominal wall. A request was made by Trevor and Tracy to pray, of, of Trevor and Tracy to pray that a miracle would happen. And they recruited friends here at Barnabas to pray. And so we prayed here in Shrewsbury, asking for God to demonstrate his power and his love in Tess's life, even though she was down in Southampton, all of those miles away. Tess was just 29 years of age. And on the 30th of September, 2015, she underwent a major operation. Tess was warned by her consultant to enjoy the, the previous three weeks because not everyone survives the surgery. Who is this consultant? Cheerful chap. Um, and there were so many various complications and risks. During Tess's operation, given all the odds, the bleak future of the cancer spreading to the abdominal wall, a true miracle happened. She was completely saved. Not only saved from the cancer, but saved by God as Tracy was able to lead her in a prayer where Tess committed her life to Jesus, became a Christian. Tess is now living her dream in another nation, in the Middle East. She's free from cancer. She's living a wonderful and a healthy life as a brand new Christian. These prayers were answered completely and in every way. And again, the geography didn't seem to get in the way. I mention these stories to encourage you and to illustrate that the authority of Jesus is such that we can pray for people who are far from us with great faith. Just as we see the account of the centurion, the healing of his servant, Jesus can speak the word and we don't need to be in the same room. He can speak the word, the authority of Jesus. We're going to come back into worship to celebrate the authority of Jesus. I'm going to ask Helen and the, and the band to come forward. And then we're just going to, during that period of worship, we're just going to pray very particularly in certain ways that I feel would be good for us to consider and to call on God for. But let's stand together first, shall we? We're first of all just on the back of the wonderful reality of the authority of Jesus, we're just going to come back and worship him. And then we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to come and move amongst us. But first of all, as Helen leads us, let's worship him together.